Every day, 34 people in their 20s and 30s are diagnosed with cancer. On the 7th of July 2015, I was one of the 34. On the 28th of August 2008, I was one of the 34. These are the stories of what happens afterwards. This is Afterthoughts. Okay, we're recording. Hi, Alice. Hi, Toby. How are you? I am okay. How are you? I'm all right. We are definitely living in some weird times, aren't we? We are indeed. So Alice and I are, we're we're currently speaking on Zoom. Which we've been doing a lot of lately. (laughs) We have been doing a lot of lately. Um, But we are recording on Zoom this time. We don't normally record our conversations. No, usually when we, um, well, we definitely don't record our normal conversations. And usually when we do a podcast, we um, like to bring the person into our bosoms. (laughs) (laughs) and we like to feed them and water them and generally look after them but unfortunately at the moment we can't do that can we we can only uh see your flat we can't be in your flat yeah it's probably because there's a massive pile of washing there is a massive pile of washing i've turned my screen around so that it's just a wall but you've gone for do you know give them the full effect and i understand that that's fine nobody's gonna see that it's only you and toral um, Which it, leads us on nicely. Yes, go for it. Um, so we are really excited today to have the brilliant Toral Shah joining us. Um, Toral has had breast cancer twice. I'll let you I'll let her tell you a bit more about that. Um, but she's also um, an amazing chef and cook, and she's really passionate about um, diet and giving yourself all of the good stuff um, to help you deal with um, your cancer experience. Um, yeah, I'm really excited to have Toral on, um, and yeah, I'm thrilled that she said yes. I'm even more gutted now that we're not doing it in person because I imagine like either we would have got some tasty treats or she she promised us snacks uh, or I would imagine that we would have had to step up our game and what you're saying about my snack game Toby just saying that we would have to step up our game like I I might because as we know at this current state of affairs like people are getting into a lot more cooking and baking I've made fantastic uh, banana bread and I saw a thing today that said um, one of the most recently discovered symptoms of coronavirus is um, an urge to bake banana bread. <laughs> Very good. Um, I have three bananas that need using up, but I make banana bread on a semi-regular basis anyway. Very nice. Yeah. I um, am imagining that the best time that we um, we cut the audio <laughs> is when you make your banana bread joke. I think that was fantastic. Oh, thanks. <laughs> That's a really good joke. It's so good, I mean, isn't it? Yeah, it's really good. Yeah. You I mean, make it up? Me. Huh? Did you make it up? No, sadly not. Oh, well, we'll just claim it. I'm not that funny. <laughs> yeah. Toril, it's great to have you here. We're so happy you've agreed to be part of Afterthoughts. Thank you for having me. I'm sorry we're not meeting in person today. I know, me too. Especially because uh, Alice told me about the, the potential of treats. <laughs> Food. I would have fed you, basically. I always <laughs> eat everyone. <laughs> oh, yeah. And uh, I, I don't even know what I've got in for lunch today. I think it's probably going to be a really sad sandwich or something. 
That is a sad. I, I made a lovely dal last night and it was the first time I've ever made dal. And I smelt it and was like, I am going to hate this. This is going to be the worst thing in the world. I, why have I made this? I don't like any of these flavours. It was so good. What kind of doll was it? Oh, I've got no idea, Alice. It's um, something like, I just followed a recipe and it went, um, but it was a real risk. But yes, I'm, I'm very sad we're not meeting in person. But here we are in Zoom. Zoom, who, who, the future who's of the world who shares must be like whew. we must be laughing at the moment Absolutely. zoom and house party yeah i've never even heard of house party before this no one zoom had heard of house, house party house party i'd never heard of and i'm like suddenly i'm on house party all the time, all the time. <laughs> so before we uh kick off diving into the stories uh Toro, that you are bringing for us uh we always like to uh, talk about the human before the cancer and so we have some quick fire questions for you um, they're really quick fire. Um, and they never end up being quick fire. They never end up being quick fire at all. And um, these are the same questions that we give everybody. There is one question here that uh, there is a wrong answer. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Okay. I haven't thought that for a while. Um, okay. okay, great. Uh, let's get started with quick fire questions. Uh, Toral, could you give us uh, the pronouns that you use, please? She. Fabulous, thank you very much. Yeah, great. <laughs> um, who do people say that you look like? My dad. <laughs> I am um, also from the school of people who <laughs> say, like, I people always say I don't think I look like any celebrity, sadly, but I do know that I look like my dad. Um, Toral, um, could you please tell us your first pet? I don't really have any pets, but I had a goldfish once. What was the goldfish called? That's that's it. I don't remember. <gasps> Where did you get the goldfish from? My friend gave it to me to babysit while she went on holiday, and then she never took it back. <laughs> that is and then it died. It went mad, and then my brother flushed it down the toilet. <laughs> Brilliant. So maybe not an animal person then, eh? No. <laughs> I love that. Um, where do you say you are from? That's always a good question because it depends whether I'm being facetious or not. Um, <laughs> um, London. Brilliant. Uh, if someone says, but where are you from? I was like, I was born in Dulwich. <laughs> That's what I always say. So, I love that. It can be such a loaded question, can't it? It's such a loaded question because obviously I'm not Caucasian, so it's very, very interesting. They're like, but where are you from? I'm like, yeah. where are you from originally? That's what people always say. <laughs> My mummy's tummy. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> My mummy's tummy. Great. Um, big, big question here. What is your favourite soup? Ooh, that's a very good question. Quite partial to French onion soup with a nice sort of croute. Perfect. Great. That's the question that there is a wrong answer to. Oh, what? Heinz tomato soup? Um, no, mushroom is the wrong answer. Do I ever eat mushroom soup? I have had like a mushroom Japanese broth, but not like a... That's Jap different. That's yeah, different. Yeah, it's different. Um, so Toby always says this question's really hard. But I think it's a great question. Um, what three words would you use to describe your personality? Uh, passionate, effervescent, and slightly mad. Brilliant. They are uh, great words. And final question. Uh, what was your favourite childhood programme? When I was really, really small, I loved the Muppets. And I thought Kermit the Frog was my boyfriend. 
that must have made me miss the piggy <laughs> but when I was about four so I'm gonna stick with that um Tom, could you tell us a little bit about your diagnosis please so cancer was something that I always knew might affect me because my mum had had breast cancer my aunt had breast cancer and loads of my mum's cousins had had breast cancer so I knew it's something that may happen when I got older and maybe something but I didn't have to think about it at that time main focus when I was in my 20s was for my mum to be make sure my mum was okay and my aunt so once I was diagnosed which is May the 11th um, I was in hospital having a lumpectomy quite quickly afterwards waiting for the results and then realized that my tumor was far 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 larger than they thought I was quite lucky most of my cancer was um, DCIS which is ductal carcinoma in situ, which means it's trapped into the milk duct. Some of it was in the head spread. So I, it was caught at a very, very early stage. But despite that, because the tumor ended up being, I think, nine centimeters by 16 centimeters, I did have to have a mastectomy. Um, and then I was kind of on the edge of whether I needed to have chemotherapy or radiotherapy. They have an amazing algorithm which the doctors use to help decide that. And they decided to save that and not to use uh, either chemo or radiotherapy because it did, there was not very much likelihood that it had spread or remained and then I had hormone treatment which was tamoxifen which I really wasn't able to tolerate the first time and I wasn't able to tolerate the second time so the second time so I have had, had chemo radiotherapy and it's, a, it's an ongoing conversation about whether that's something that would work for me because I have very hormone dependent cancer um, the second time I had the after much discussion again I just had the, the lump removed, the new tumor removed. There is potentially stuff to do next. I am having, I've been having tamoxifen and the conversation was to have Zolodex, but I've decided not to do that. I'm also a functional medicine practitioner. So I'm looking at how I can do things using the latest science and gene, gene testing. Um, but at the moment we're, we're not doing anything, but we probably do need to do something because the skin around where I've had the mastectomy and the second um, lumpectomy, the second reoccurrence, is not behaving and is not happy. So we're not sure whether it's just unhappy skin or whether it's new cancer cells on the skin. So watch and wait. Let's see. So we're going to start by talking um, about beyond a diagnosis. So obviously when you hear the words, you have cancer, things change but we don't necessarily hear the stories of beyond that that much so we would love to hear um, a story about beyond a diagnosis if you have one. So one of the interesting things that happened was on the, one, the day after I left the hospital after I had my mastectomy and I was feeling incredibly sorry for myself I just had my 30th birthday um, and then one of our friends was doing London triathlon and it was a beautiful sunny day. So my brother said, if I drive you up, why don't we go and watch him? And then you can get a bit of sunshine. All our friends are going to be there and you can catch up with people. I thought, okay, fine. In my head, I was thinking, this is a very ridiculous thing to do. Why am I even going to watch this triathlon? But you know, fine. As long as I park somewhere in a pub with a drink and I don't have to move because at that point I was very, very sore. I thought, fine, that will be great. So off we went. Um, and I started to watch all these people and there are a lot of really hot men running around essentially and, and cycling. And I thought, this is quite fun. This is a good way to meet men. 
And I sort of was, you know, thinking about it, had a great time. Our friend did really well. We had a few drinks. And I thought to myself in my head, I know once all this is over, I'm going to do London triathlon. Didn't tell anybody. Um, slowly started to heal, started to go back to the gym. But I think literally the week later, I made my mom drive me to the gym. I used to go to spin class with my arms strapped up and start training. I had a personal trainer at the time. And I said to him, I want to do London triathlon, but I don't want to tell anybody. I want you to train me. And then even if I can't do it, because I'm not physically able to, because I knew I had more surgery to come and potentially radiotherapy, chemotherapy, whatever. I, I still want to train for it. I want you to help me. I just don't want to tell anybody. I'll apply and we'll see what happens. So I applied, was accepted. I didn't tell anybody. Was training really hard. By that time, I think, and I was in and out of hospital, having surgery and surgery and surgery, but kept you know, having a few weeks off and then just doing what I could do. Um, but all the kit literally had like a really fancy bike. I had my triathlon suit. I had a wetsuit. It was amazing. And then I started to tell people because I suddenly thought, actually, I need to do this for charity. So I decided it for what was called the, then the Lavender Trust, which is for younger women with breast cancer. Um, and everyone sort of looked at me because I'm not a runner. <laughs> I think everyone's slightly perplexed that, whoa, she's doing this thing. She's never really run, but let's see what happens. So the day I arrived, um, it was 34 degrees, you know, much hotter than any other day that I trained in. <laughs> I wasn't anticipating that. You know, got my outfit on, got everybody, you know, all my friends and family were there. Everyone's cheering. Um, and I got in the water and, you know, I'd been doing all these triathlon kind of workshops and things so I knew whether to wait went for the swim uh and it kind of came out actually quite fast so I'm actually a really good swimmer and then to the cycling and then by the running I was just exhausted but I had my name on my t-shirt so people kept cheering on so that was brilliant and I kind of went round, and it was actually my birthday that weekend the triathlon's always around my birthday and it came out and I literally everyone was literally did you actually finish I was like yeah and I had a relatively good time and I was really quite happy. And I, it felt incredible that despite what had happened to me over the last year with all the surgery and the treatments and working out what to do. And I was still in a process where we were still trying to work out what to do about whether to have radiotherapy or what uh, hormone treatment to do or things like that. I'd actually done this amazing thing. I'd done this Olympic triathlon and swam 1.5 kilometers, cycled 40 kilometers, I run 10 kilometers and was still smiling at the end of it. Um, had really bad sunburn though because I'd sun, put sunscreen everywhere except on the little bit of the nape at the back of my neck where your hairline meets and so sunburnt that I had to sleep with an ice pack <laughs> but I did raise nearly 15,000 pounds for the Lavender Trust which was phenomenal and it was my first triathlon got a little bit hooked for a couple of years kept doing that keep thinking I should you know maybe now that I've had my reoccurrence and I'm kind of over that a little bit I would restart my triathlon career. I'm, my bike is sitting behind us as we speak, but let's see. So that was something I never would have done if I hadn't had breast cancer because I didn't want the cancer to be the end of who I was as a person. I wanted it to be the beginning of all the great things I could do. It really spurred me on to push my body into doing something I wasn't sure I could do, but I thought this is a perfect opportunity to try these things. So off I went. That's amazing. And like, I recognize so much of what you talk about um did you still have your drains in yes i had bags i was carrying them i forgot about that you I want to tell this... people about drains and what what that's like and and yeah. 
how that felt seeing all of these super fit healthy people and you were like lugging around a packet of your own bodily fluids yeah that was really strange so I was in really good shape when I had breast cancer the first time but I was I let I in those days when you went in for a mastectomy you were in for about a week and you ended up leaving the drains I had to I left earlier than possibly they wanted to because it was my birthday and I wanted to go to the fat duck which I'd had booked for a long time and I left with the drains because other than that I was fine it was just impossible to sleep in a hospital where everyone was very loud um so I came home with the drains which I had for a good week I think afterwards and you get these fancy little cloth bags where you put the drains in it's basically draining um your blood and tissue fluid from from the wound site because a mastectomy particularly uh, 14 years ago was quite invasive and they've managed to have amazing new surgical techniques so, so you don't have to go through quite as much now but it's still hard um so I was carrying I think I had three drains and I had little bags to carry that and they sort of slung over your shoulders because your whole chest area is so sore and you're in such pain you're, you're almost caving your shoulders forward because you're trying to protect your muscles um and so I'm in the chapel wearing a summer dress with probably a sports bra because that's what they make you wear these really ugly bras and these drains and watching these really hot men run around it was very interesting contrast move on now to invisible impacts yeah. uh invisible impacts is an opportunity to tell us about some of the things that people don't don't see firsthand i guess and some of the uh parts of the stories that are are a little bit um unseen that's that's a roundabout way of saying invisible impacts twice wasn't it that's <laughs> great thing to do um toro have you got a story for us around invisible impacts I have several stories, but I think there's two really important things. Um, the first one is I was quite ready to buy a flat a couple, a few years after I had breast cancer and started looking and, you know, the usual the excitement and how I'm going to do this. And you start to look at your finances and getting things organized and, you know, start looking at places. And obviously you have all the finance things kind of there in the background and you're doing that, but you're also just, the excitement's really about looking and finding the right place once you know where you want to live. And what I realized was that I couldn't get a mortgage on my own because it hadn't been less than five years since I'd had breast cancer. I needed um, to ha either have a guarantor or someone be or have someone be on the mortgage with me, which obviously as a single person, I didn't have another person. Uh, and also I was self-employed. So it made it really, really hard to get a mortgage and, and to buy a flat because I couldn't buy life insurance. And that was something that no one had ever talked to me about. It hadn't even occurred to me that that would be part of the, the lasting impact of having cancer at a young age. And actually it's something that really affects you because that's what you want to do. You want to buy a home. It's a very British thing I know <laughs> and, and, you know, settle in and have your own life. And that's something that was massively impacted um, and I had to do quite a lot of research to help me work out what was best. In the end, it ended up being my parents uh, buying it with me. And actually, they they had they invested in me. And so I got rather than inheriting money when I got older, when they when they passed away, they've used that to help me buy my flat, just because it ended up being the easiest way. But and I also get I was just really lucky that my parents 
were able to do that at that time and can support me. But otherwise, I just wouldn't have been able to buy a flat by myself being, having had cancer young, not being able to have life insurance and not having a partner and being self-employed. It just put everything against me. And, and I just had no idea that was something that was going to happen a few years down the line. And it was really difficult because it, it just makes you feel that you're not independent and you're not grown up and you still need your parents. And I had to rely so much on my family and my parents when I was diagnosed with breast cancer, when everyone else was sort of buying flats, getting married, having babies. And I was pretty much being back at home with my parents, lying around, you know, trying to recover um, and all those sorts of things. So it's something that no one even talked about either. Kept thinking, it's this particular mortgage broker, this financial advisor. Let me find another one. And I <laughs> realized, then I, so, uh, I think after the third one, I realized it, it, it wasn't them, it was me. And that was really actually quite upsetting and hurtful, actually, in some ways. Because I'm like, I've been through all this stuff, but yet no one's talked about this. And, like, you know, this is actually before Trekstock was around. And actually, Trekstock does have some really good resources on finances. But for me, it, it, it's something that no one had ever talked about. A lot of the resources that were there for cancer were people who were a bit older, who already had their lives set up. And I didn't have my life set up yet. Thank you for um, those stories on Invisible Impact. And I think, yeah, I think there's so much. I, I, had, I was in a very privileged position where I had a mortgage when I'd been diagnosed. So it's not something I ever had to think about. And, you know, it just goes to show the, the difference between um, the experiences that, that young people have. Moving on now, though, we're going to talk about those around us. So we often think that cancer just happens to an individual. But um, Toby and I suspected that it happened to um, many other people from our own experience. And that's something that definitely has been supported by the conversations and stories that we've heard in this podcast so far. So Toril, do you have a story about those around us that you might like to share? I think what's really interesting about this is that it probably impacts our family and friends in ways that we don't even realise and that they may still have not talked to us about despite it being a really long time but one of the conversations that happened was that everyone rallied around me and you know I had lots of people offering support and coming around to visit me and all sorts of things but I found it really hard to accept help and I also didn't know how what I needed and one of the conversations that happened a lot later quite a few years later was that when I my friend one of my really good friends, we were were not getting on for some reason. Anyway, so she brought up a conversation. She said, you know, we tried to help you so much when you had breast cancer, but you got really angry with us all the time because we weren't able to mind read and give you what you needed because you didn't really even know. And I was very resistant to that conversation, really angry about it. But in hindsight, I'm like, I didn't really know myself what support I needed. So it was really hard for people to provide it. And, you know, all my other friends were off doing other things like starting to be in big relationships and getting married and buying houses and really furthering their careers. And I was, I'd literally started working for myself not that long before. I was, had breast cancer. I was single and I didn't kind of really know what was going on. And 
for those people, for my friends to be able to provide support was really incredibly hard. So that's been quite interesting about the impact of my cancer on other people. And also where people feel like they have to walk on eggshells sometimes because I just get really upset. But then I'm also like, well, you haven't actually listened to me. If you just listen to me, then I actually, I don't, I don't need that much. I just need people to listen to me, not to try and fix things. So my brother, I know that's something that we argue about a lot because he's trying to find solutions, fix it. And I'm like, I just want you to listen to me and understand that my life's been a bit shit sometimes. And you're, you're just saying, oh, just get on with it. Don't, there's nothing. You've got so much. I'm like, no, you have no idea what it's like to feel physically and mentally defeated sometimes. How do you feel watching your mum experience cancer when you were, so you said you were in your 20s when she I'm had her cancer. Yeah. And then obviously like six years later you got yours. How do you think watching your mum go through it impacted your experience of cancer? It made me more confident and certain I could get through it, but also more scared at the same time. Because her mistake to me, my mum didn't ever have reconstruction. And so she's flat. And for me, that was just inconceivable. And the idea of being flat, especially because I'm one of those people that's always a quite good figure, had good cleavage, da, 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 um, and dresses that way, that I find that horrible. Like literally just the idea. And even now, I mean, I don't cringe anymore, but the whole idea that that would happen to me, because there was a conversation at one point where they weren't sure what they could offer me because they didn't ever always do re immediate reconstructions in those days and also depends on what they found when they went in um so that bit was really hard for me because i just didn't want to look like that the same time it was easy because my mom knew what i was talking about when i said i'm feeling this or i'm feeling that she she understood a lot of it some of the stuff she didn't understand she's always really clear now that there's things that she didn't understand because she's i just don't know what it's like to have a physical relationship with somebody else because I was with your dad and that's kind of how it is. And that's the end of that. I didn't have to be new, you know, be naked with anyone new. Whereas obviously for me, that was like, oh my Lord, how is this going to happen? And that's, you know, one of the invisible, this whole dating thing is when do you tell someone that you've had breast cancer? Like when, because that's what they're going to, they're going to see. <laughs> so if you tell them too early, it's very presumptive. If you tell them too late, like, it's a little bit like you didn't trust them and you didn't say anything. So when do you tell someone? It's, it's hard. It's a really hard conversation. So I think having mum, I think one of the brilliant things that happened was my mum is very vocal. She does a lot of work in the cancer community. She still runs a breast cancer group. She's talked about experience. And that's quite rare in the BAME community. And having that role model of someone who was very open about her cancer experience and the fact that she'd done nothing wrong and wasn't being secretive made it so much easier for me to share my story and to work with it and to talk to friends and talk to family and then obviously do some of the other work I've done in the kind of with the charities and the media and stuff because I had a phenomenal role model who didn't there's nothing wrong with having cancer it's, it's just something that happened it's not something I've done wrong and there's no reason to be a secret and I think back in 1999 when mum had breast cancer that was quite unusual baby people did not talk about it she said it was far far worse watching me had breast cancer than having herself like really and I think I felt so sorry for her that she had to go through that because watching your child go she said watching your child go through anything is worse than having it yourself you'd much rather you have it yourself and take the hit basically um and she and also just knowing that i was that much younger my life was in a much different place you know because obviously she was 20 years older than me when she had a mastectomy and it was a very different experience when you're you know 
been married, had kids, all the rest of it. Obviously, one of the things we haven't talked about is how having the breast cancer diagnosis and subsequent treatment, it's impacted like my finances, it's impacted my career, it's impacted my dating, it's impacted getting married, it's impacting my fertility and like whether I have children now, which I'm not going to have right now, I don't think. Um, and that's been a lot for me to absorb and to deal with. And most people still don't understand. My friends find some of these conversations hard because they're not had to understand those things. And as much as my mom has been through it, again, it's been, I guess, a really long time. And she's, she's almost put, she's kind of put all the negative aspects out of her life. And she's just taken all the positive stuff. And then she's run with it because she's not had any other issues. And really, she doesn't, she doesn't go for checkup. There's nothing. She doesn't, she hasn't had to do, you know, it's been a long time since she's had to deal with it. Obviously, she still has some pain, but generally, there's nothing that she has to really do with like to remind of the cancer thing for me every time I go to the Royal Marsden you know I feel like yeah, sometimes I mean in the last year I feel like I've been there so much again and that's hard it reminds you that you haven't quite moved forward in the way that you wanted to yeah I get that I really really feel that my friend and you know what's what's interesting is that i'm that much older i'm like now 14 years past the first time i still feel like i'm still like the, one of the younger people in the waiting room i'm like hang on a second oh so we know that so many young people get cancer uh particularly breast cancer but like i still sitting there and i'm like why do i still look like the youngest person and i'm clearly you know not that young anymore not you know so it's really interesting that as much as I want to move on, there's a, a, a physical reminder all the time because every time I look at my body, I'm like, I've got these like millions of scars. Um, and also I have pain, you know, quite a lot of the time. But at the same time, it's, it's, it's not as easy as that because there've been so many impacts to it, like literally every area of my life. And I don't think, when my, someone like my brother, who's nothing bad's ever really happened to him, I don't think he gets it. And he's constantly saying, oh, but, but you should just do this and you should not I'm just like, well, why don't you walk a mile in my shoes and then we'll see it whether you would you would be able to deal with it or not. The next section of Afterthoughts is uh, a sliding scale kind of uh, section where we ask where, <laughs> we, where you feel at the moment on a gift or grievance around cancer. So ask for a story of a gift that cancer has given you or a story of a grievance you have with cancer. Um, so Toral, over to you. Where are you at this moment? I'm going to be honest. I think I'm mostly of the gift um, place because as much as things have been incredibly hard and, and, and I have many grievances with cancer, I do think it has been a reminder that live life for the now. And there are lots of things that I probably have done that I probably wouldn't have done if I hadn't had the cancer experience. So I'm very much of, I do think about the future, but there are lots of moments where I'm just spontaneous and I just go and do things. So one of the things I did was I always wanted to go and do a ski season and then I felt a bit old. I thought, hang on a second, I've had the breast cancer. I just have to go. doesn't matter how old I am. So um, a couple of years after I had breast cancer, I, and we'd had the recession in 2008. I just packed up my bags and over, over the weekend, found a job and moved to France. I lived in a ski resort and worked as a chef. 
because I was really keen to do that. I was like, well, if I don't do it now, who knows when I'm going to do it. Um, and that was something I definitely wouldn't have done if I hadn't had the breast cancer and I hadn't pushed myself. I would have been like working away and thinking of career and money and blah, blah, blah. And now my life is very much about experiences. I, I love my home. I love my work. I love my business. I love the impact I make on people. But I, it's not all about money. I mean, I want money to be able to have amazing experiences. And I think that's a massive gift that I'm not after the latest clothes ever. I mean, if you see me, I'm always in my gym kit. But um, I think, and, and that's something that's, it's been a constant reminder that, you know, just go and do things. So even me going to Mexico, there were lots of reasons why I maybe should have gone and maybe I should have saved my money and maybe this and that. But I'm so glad I just picked up, went, and I was by myself for a few days and then I went to a retreat and just being able to travel by myself and make the most of life and have those experiences is something I don't take for granted. I'm really conscious that if I hadn't, I, I don't live in a box anymore. I live outside the box. And I'm constantly seeing solutions outside the box. And that's partly with all the personal development I've done, all the experience I've had with my business and with the things that worked and not worked. And all of that comes from knowing that the universe has my back and I just need to go and live life for now, which maybe I wouldn't have done before. So our, our penultimate theme um, is the, the lost conversations. Um, we know that, you know, the cancer community is growing and um, especially because of social media platforms and blah, 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 and the conversations are changing. Uh, but is there a kind of story of a lost conversation um, that you would like to tell us? So one thing that's been really different for me is when I was first diagnosed with breast cancer, I was 29. This is back in 2006. This is before Facebook had even started. There, there was no social media. And so I find it really hard to find other young people to connect with, particular people from a baby community who understood what I was really going through and the cultural things I was going through. For example, when I explained that the anesthetist said these very odd things to me, um, I, I felt very alone every time I'd go to hospitals by myself. I didn't know who to connect to. There was one girl, maybe when I had my mastectomy, who was in her 30s, but no one really in their 20s. So then I was really grateful when we found the Haven, Breast Cancer Haven, and they had a younger women's support group that I started going to. Um, it just gave me the opportunity to talk about the things that I wanted to talk about, but my friends didn't quite get. Like, how do you deal with dating? What do you do about your eyebrows? What do you do about um, you know, the, the side effects of tamoxifen? What do you do about X, Y, Z? And those are conversations that really my other friends just could have contributed to because I had no idea what it felt like. But I still felt quite alone. I was really lucky because the Breast Cancer Haven group was quite mixed and had other people from BAME communities, um, you know, at least a couple of which I'm still friends with now. Sadly, a few of those people have passed on. Uh, which is horribly sad, but it did give me some people to start having that conversation, but it still felt like cancer was a very Caucasian disease at the time. And some of the issues that I experienced as being a person um, from the BAME groups weren't really talked about and there was no one to really identify with. So that made it a little bit harder. And like when I think about my reoccurrence and my diagnosis, it was so easy. I was eight already in a cancer communities with Trek stock and 
so many other charities already, but it just made it a lot easier because people are talking about things on Instagram and Facebook and now having other people and people of different cultures, particularly in the Bay minority that I can speak to about the particular issues that I've had with um, my cancer diagnosis and reoccurrence has made a huge difference. And I'm really lucky, like I'm friends with someone called Simon Thompson, who started the BAME Cancer Support Group. And having that group, we have this amazing Facebook group that we can talk to. And I've made loads of friends through that group who are just, get it. And I don't have to say, I can just say I'm having a shit day or X, Y, Z's happen. And they get it. And doesn't mean that, and I've got other cancer, you know, community friends that I can do things with. So it just makes a huge difference. And I don't feel quite as alone. And also people didn't talk about cancer 14 years ago, really. I mean, I was the outlier. I was one of those weird people like, oh my God, you had breast cancer at 29, blah, blah, blah. And there were a couple of people talking about things, but this kind of almost pre-Copperfield and all these other charities really talking about it. So I felt very lost. I think it's just being part of a community always makes a difference. And I think social media has made such a huge difference to that. What would you love to see as a next step? Firstly, the charities need, and the organ, like cancer organizations need to acknowledge that there are many, many, many different people and cancer does not discriminate. So whether you're from the LGBT you know, community, you're from a BAME community, you might be from some sort of religious community, that cancer affects all of us. And I think making sure that people understand that by including people from all different um, sexualities, races, religions, whatever, in their campaigns would be really important. Because at the moment, I don't think, I think there are lots of communities who don't think they get cancer. And I think that's really terrifying. We're in 2020, and yet we live in a city that's one of the most kind of culturally mixed cities in the world. You know, London has over 53% of people identify as BAME of some sort, which is Black, Asian, ethnic minorities, um, or refugee, or whatever it is, BAME, if you want to say. Yet most of the campaigns are Caucasian people, and they're of a particular type. And I think until the bigger organizations and the research organizations and the charities really take that on board. It's going to be hard for other people to feel understood and gotten. We all have to accept it. And it's not just the cancer community. It's in the health and wellness industry. It's the same thing. And I, I work in that industry and it's the same thing. And I feel like I'm constantly shouting about it, but I'm like, I know I've got the confidence and the statistics behind me to be able to share and, and you know, I'm articulate enough to talk about it. But, and also I have an amazing role model in my mother who, who so it's never been, I've been able to talk about these things, but a lot of people don't feel like they've got their family or their friends behind them to even talk about it. And it's very secretive still. So I do feel like it's up to people like us to really shout about it because it really, you know, we're in 2020, it should be equal for men and women. It should be equal for sexualities. It should be equal for races. It should be equal for religions and faiths. And it's not. And really equanimity is what we want. That's all. It, and, and, and I'm a very staunch feminist. And feminism is about equality between men and women and the rights we get and the pay we get. It's the same for the cancer community. You know, we need to make sure that, you know, the stats show that people from the BAME community are way less likely to be included in clinical trials. Women are way less likely to be included in clinical trials. And until we make this um, kind of equal and have everyone to have their same opportunity, we're always going to have people, more people dying, sadly. Um, from the BAME community and that's really sad because they're diagnosed much later in a much later stage and this is the serious part of the conversation but it's hugely important 
are moving on now to our last um, storytelling theme, which is don't laugh. Now, um, Toby and I have talked a lot over the last couple of months about the fact that cancer can actually be really funny. And we've both got a lot of stories about times when cancer was funny. You know, it's still shit, it's still horrible, but there are times when things happen that are entertaining. Have you got a story for us um, about a time cancer made you laugh? So many stories. I used to have a little WhatsApp group called Things That Cancer Made Me Do, which were all ridiculous, hilarious things with my cousins and the ridiculous things that happened. But I've got two in particular, which involve um, male health professionals and Toral and getting undressed. So the first one was I'd been newly diagnosed. I was having my preoperative appointment before I had my lumpectomy. And so off I trot. It's all quite early days. Bear in mind, I'm 29. I'm in really good shape. I'm training loads. I'm a little bit like, okay, this is, this is strange having to be undressed in front of people despite having a good figure. Um, so I get there and the doctor who was doing my preoperative was just gorgeous. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not even going to lie. And I remember thinking, okay, so he did my blood pressure and my height and you know, all the other stuff. And then he had to obviously examine me and I was just mortified because I was just a bit like thinking, this is not the situation in which I want to get undressed with you. Like there's many other scenarios I can think of, but this is not one of them. This is not one of them. This is not how I want you to see my boobs. <laughs> um, and then fast forward by about six months when I'd got used to everyone and the whole world seeing my boobs um, or lack of boobs or whatever it was. And I used to have a really lovely male nurse in at the Royal Marsden, who we became really close to because he was just phenomenal and he was always there for my appointments and all of those things. And that particular day, so I was so like just stripping off, I went in and I would decide, I literally started undressing and they're like, and it was just him and my mom and me. <laughs> you don't need to do that today. There's no need. <laughs> just became really complacent. And that, the, the difference between the first appointment and obviously like further down the line, I was like, yep, it's fine. I just, I just take my clothes off. It's fine. Everyone can see my moves. And it, and I think it's, when I think about it, it's just hilarious. It's just, you know, <laughs> you can just be so like flippant about, okay, well, everyone's seen my boobs now. It's, it's like my party trick. You know, if someone wants to see, I said, oh, have you ever seen a mastectomy? Would you like to see? I'm always a bit like, here you go. Off you go. So <laughs> I think every breast cancer patient goes through that, that kind of, that journey of being like, oh, oh, I don't want anybody to see me. And then just be like, oh, fine. I'll get my tits out again. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It's just, but it is quite the whole idea is just like, whoa, this is quite hilarious. Um, I have many other stories. Can I share one more? Yeah, please. My mum is definitely not listening to this particular episode of podcast. But um, when I first, so I was single and I had a really bad breakup before I was diagnosed with breast cancer. And there was that whole conversation about when you start dating and like when you tell someone and when you, and I didn't know. So eventually, I think it must have been about uh, eight months after my mastectomy, I had been doing some online dating, finally, you know, been dating, you know, got to a point where I was dating someone for more than a few times, got to the point where we were going to spend the first night together. And I hadn't told him ever about the breast cancer. And just literally just as if I'd wiped this whole thing from a memory, which is ridiculous because I was in the hospital all the time. But I think this is a pre, again, the days where we were constantly 
messaging on our phones because you had to message via the computer. It was not happening for your phone unless you texted them and called them. You know. So um, we had this you know, date set up that was, you know, we knew that was going to be the day and, you know, kissing all the rest of it and got to the point where we're about to, you know, have sex. And I said, stop, I need to tell you something. He's like, what? I'm like, I said, I have to tell you something. He's like, what is it? You're not married, are you? I'm like, no, I was going to tell you. He's like, oh, that's fine. And it just literally carried on as if nothing. I hadn't said anything important. And it was really interesting because I was so lucky that that guy was such a, he was such a lovely guy. And he, and, you know, after obviously that, that beautiful moment happened, we ended up having a proper conversation about it. Um, and he was like, oh, he goes, really, to be honest, I don't really quite notice. <laughs> I was like, oh, this is good. But B, you know, just then from then on, obviously we were dating for a few months afterwards. I like, really took an interest in what was happening, the surgery, the treatment. And I felt like I was so lucky that the first person I dated was so understanding. But it was really funny that his main concern was not anything to do with my body. It was, and I think that shows the difference between men and women. It was like, was I married? <laughs> I was just like, why would I be on this date after all this time? It was so funny. And it made me... <laughs> really giggle that that was his first response not 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 anything else oh breast cancer that's fine let's just get on with this last part of afterthoughts is we ask uh, what your afterthoughts are and um i'll start with alice it's basically your afterthoughts on on afterthoughts alice what are your afterthoughts on after i've said it f- 500 times there let's just go with so that. my afterthoughts yeah. on this episode of afterthoughts are that i'm really annoyed that we couldn't record in real life because i want to eat some of toral's food so we'll have to do that again another time how about we do an afterthoughts after session after party after corona after corona <laughs> yes uh toby what are your afterthoughts on today's episode of afterthoughts um mine are that uh toro it's been lovely to uh have your stories with us and and also i i really want to celebrate like like you talked a lot about your mum, and i think yeah there's and i know she said she's not gonna you said she's not gonna be listening and things but i think it's lovely to yeah as we think about those people who have gone through these things with us and also if they've had their own experiences so um yeah thank you for yeah thinking about yeah thinking about your mum cheers to your mama and Toral, what is your afterthought on today's episode of afterthoughts firstly thank you for just being such creative storytellers but it's been amazing to revisit moments of my cancer journey that i maybe haven't thought about for quite a few years or even talked about and i think realizing how far i've come and the massive amount of experience I've had in life and learning and compassion and growing my empathy and a lot of my life I've my a lot of my adult life has been me being a cancer patient survivor but it's brought a lot of positives to it too and a lot of laughter and I'm sure there's lots of things I've done I never would have done if I hadn't had the cancer experience and so thank you for reminding me of all the positives because the last week I have been sitting here on my own in isolation thinking, oh my God, what if it's come back and we don't know because I'm not going to the hospital. So this has been really great. So thank you so much. No worries. Thank you, Toral. It's been really fab to talk to you. So thank you once again, Toral, for coming to join us via Zoom for um, Afterthoughts. And um, we'll 
see you all next time thank you bye Today's episode of Afterthoughts has sparked any thoughts or feelings that you'd like to speak to somebody about. We would really, really recommend you grabbing a cup of tea with a friend or dropping them a WhatsApp. Or you could speak to our fantastic charity supporters, Trekstock. Trekstock get young adults in their 20s and 30s moving again, physically, socially and psychologically, when cancer has stopped them in their tracks. Find out more at www.trekstop.com. Afterthoughts is produced by Alice May Perkis and Toby Peach from Beyond Arts. With sound design by Kieran Lucas. Thank you.